before we get going, here's the bit where I remind you that nothing we discussed should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets. And now on with the show. My very special guest on this episode of the Grant Williams podcast is my mate, Adam Rodman, the founder and chief investment officer at Segra Capital in Dallas, Texas. Adam's pedigree is strong. He cut his teeth working with Mark Hart at Corriente Advisors. And every time I get a chance to speak with him, he blows me away with the way his mind works. Now, it certainly doesn't hurt that he's one of the good guys. He's generous with his time, he's great company, and he's smart as a whip. Now, this time, the subject at hand is one that Adam has been way out in front of, but which the world is now seemingly catching up to, and that is uranium. Segra have been very early in this space, highlighting its potential long before it became flavor of the month. So without any further ado, let's bring Adam on and find out a little bit more about investing in uranium. Adam, mate, great to get a chance to talk to you. It's been way, way, way too long. It has been way too long. I, I can see your face. I don't know if the people listening know that that we can see each other on the screen. But uh, well, I'm, I'm doing them a favor, not you. <laughs> You're reverse aging. Yeah, yeah, right. I wish. I wish. <laughs> I'm a grandfather now, two times over. Um, so listen, the subject of uranium has been coming up a lot in recent months, and every time... I, I think of uranium, it, it, it's always your face I see in my head. You know, you and I have had some fascinating conversations about it. We talked about this subject four or five years ago, I think. And I know that it's a trade that you've been in before anybody was in it and, and, and banging the drum. So I really wanted to go and, and give people a sense of the, the real background of this trade because, as I said, it, it's become quite popular, but I think there's an awful lot more to it than perhaps the, the kind of fintwit dog pile is, is making out. And I just thought yeah. you're the perfect person to really give it some context and some background. So uh, before we get into the uranium, just give people a kind of quick potted history of your of your background so they know kind of where you came from, and then we'll get into the uranium story. Yeah, definitely. So um, I, uh, I'm the founder of Segra Capital. I had the pleasure of talking with Grant, you know, several times now over the years. Uh, the Oh, man, we've been kind of pigeonholed into putting our strategy into a few words. And I think the, the, the best, the best way we've ended up putting it is that over kind of our history, we've, we've tried to pitch ideas that cause the audience to recoil or the potential allocator <laughs> to recoil at, you know, at first blush. Um, and if they've heard it before, or if they're not somewhat kind of repulsed by what we think is a great investment idea, we, we felt like we weren't doing our jobs. Um, and so that, that I mean, I, in, in some that that's, I think the best way that, that we put it. Um, and, uh, my firm has increasingly focused on all things nuclear. We're going to talk about uranium today, but, um, whether by, uh, purpose uh, or, or just the way things worked out, we, we really have gotten, um, sucked in, in a good way to the nuclear industry. We think it broadly is misunderstood and really undervalued relative to, uh, not just like our climate goals, but I think as uh, in terms of societal contribution and the industries that we look at, um, uh, really undervalued. So the last several years, we've we've spent a majority of our time looking at that. We still do other things, but um, everything from you know advanced nuclear technologies and advocacy work and and 
how we think the energy transition plays out broadly to obviously kind of our favorite topic and, and where we started on all of this, which was um, you know, the vulnerabilities, as we saw it a few years ago in the uh, nuclear fuel uh, cycle supply chain. You know, it's, it's fascinating. I think you, me, and Dave Ibum were having a, an email back and forth. It, it must be five years ago about this stuff and talking about this is a long-term trade and talking about how unloved it all was. So, so you know, kind of take us back to the beginning of, of your involvement in the sector, kind of paint a picture of what it looked like and then the, the kind of frustrations between then and now. Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, when, when, we started, when we started really digging into this, well, taking a step back, uh, I was lucky to be involved in kind of the broader uh, uranium commodity thesis in the 2007 to mid-2010 period. You know, better lucky than good. We were out of it uh, in, into kind of the boom years um, before Fukushima. Uh, and, and then really just, you know, kind of had it on the back burner uh, you know, during its false kind of false fits and starts from post-Fukushima um, really into the, the trough around the 2017 period. But we always had our eye on it. And, and one of the things that I guess re-peaked our interest, and this was 2014 or 2015, was just that we were in kind of this peak renewables fur in the rest of the world, uh, or in most of the world. And China, which had been so critical to commodity cycle um, then, and I guess to a certain extent now, was the one major economy that uh, somewhat out of left field, very publicly um, reasserted their intention to grow nuclear as a percentage of their generation domestically. And maybe more importantly, it was very clear in, in saying that they were counting on it to be some of its carbon-free generation. So if this is 2014, 2015, it's years before you know, the momentum we have behind the, uh, you know, the energy transition or, or climate change, whatever you want to call it today. But nonetheless, it was still, you know, it was still a topic that, that came up a lot. And the rest of the world was, you know, this was a time when, when the U.S. was going to be shutting down, I don't know, 35 or 40% of our nuclear generation. Western Europe was doing the same. Uh, every headline was about wind and solar kind of saving, saving the world and, and being the delta in our energy mix. And, and China said something very different. So it, it caused us to kind of dust off our playbook. Um, and what really defined our views on this was a delayed capital cycle. So we will get into it, but you know, demand cycles in, in uranium are very lumpy and they are hard to predict. And, I, and we've been very clear about that you know, kind of from the beginning. But what's easier to kind of forecast is about how long it takes to get new supply on right. and the capital required and the timelines required. And what we got very comfortable with was that in any given quarter or certainly given in, in any given year, the amount that utilities decide to procure in the uranium market can vary a lot, um, especially when you factor in that inventories run very high um, as part of the industry. And so the desire to draw or build is an added kind of key variable in the whole thing that can that can elongate cycles both ways. But nonetheless, ultimately, reactors that are operating in the world use a very easy to calculate amount of uranium on a steady state basis. And what we said is that while, again, it might vary around on the margin year to year, we know what they were going to require over time. And when we looked at that, even back in 2015, but certainly we got conviction around it in 2017, 2018, when we became, you know, when we actually got invested in the trade in a meaningful way, um, is that demand would return. 
um, and that we had already kind of missed that critical CapEx window uh, to meet that demand. And that's a little bit of what's playing out today, um, but what what you know exists in terms of a tailwind for the, for the investment into the future now. So, so for the people that don't understand, because you know, as commodities go, the uranium supply is pretty unique. It's not something you find all over the world. It's restricted to a few places. So just just paint a picture of just how the market is structured in terms of where uranium comes from, because there'll be people that don't kind of know that. Yeah. So probably topical, and I'm assuming we'll talk about yeah. it today. Yeah. You know, the, the largest producer in the world is uh, Kazakhstan, um, you know, 40 to 45% of global production. Canada, uh, just north of my border, at least here in the U.S., uh, is another historically, uh, and I'll caveat that, large uranium producer. Uh, it exists but isn't mined much in Australia, uh, likely will into the future. Uh, and then Africa kind of round out, and Russia round out the, uh, the producing nations. But it's very concentrated, um, not just geographically, but also um, in terms of the counterparties or companies um, that produce it. So, you know, Kazakhstan is 40 some odd percent of global supply, as I pointed out. One company, Kazatomprom, uh, would control those uh, assets. Um, Campco has large resources and, in theory, has large production, mainly via uh, the publicly traded company, Campco. And then, even, you know, even in Africa, which, uh, or Australia, it, it, it's, it's, the, the producing resources are controlled by a relatively few number of players. In Africa, it's, it's mostly uh, Arano, the French uh, company, uh, and then um, the Chinese have a large stake there. And then time will tell who actually runs uh, Australia's resources. Yeah, right. Yeah, if and exactly. when they're approved going forward. Yeah. Yeah. So now, now, now what about restrictions on mining, some of the, the rules around it? Because it's not just a pull it out the ground and flip it for a, for a buck commodity. Yeah, we we could probably have a whole separate podcast on the on the regulatory regime, but your your point's well taken. I, th- I think the big takeaway is that the lead times to new production are very long, uh, regardless of where you are. Permitting timelines vary. Africa probably being on the faster end of things. Uh, historically, Canada, um, given its jurisdiction, has been kind of on on the longer lead time of permitting. But there's a lot of oversight that goes into it, and the, and the critical point. There, the takeaway is just that supply responses when demand returns take longer uh, than expected. You know, there, are, there, are, there weren't many, if any, um, Wall Street analysts uh, looking at the space when, when we got started. But given that the public market cap has, has grown and nuclear is definitely taking its place kind of amongst energy investments globally, you are starting to get a little bit of um, you know, sell-side institutional research coverage. But what's interesting is you know, a lot of the newbies uh, don't kind of have their, their uranium history right. So a lot of people, uh, a lot of analysts, you know, point to the massive run in prices that we saw kind of during the last cycle. Um, and uh, incorrectly believe that lots of new companies, you know, benefited from that price move uh, in a tangible way. Forget stock prices, but like, you know, tangible ways. Uh, and that, you know, we, we, we talked to two analysts in the last few weeks who, who had a more skeptical view of uranium prices because they thought all these companies were going to start producing. Um, and most of them thought that between two and three dozen new uranium companies started mining through the last cycle when the answer is, you know, one. 
Um, yeah. Langer Heinrich mine Paladins was mainly the, the, the only you know, new uh, mine that came into production through that cycle. So again, misinformation out there. It takes a long time to your point. Um, there are a lot of regulatory, uh, environmental uh, permitting hurdles, which means that this market should always be thinking probably 10 years ahead of when they see supply problems. But inevitably, that doesn't shake out. And that's why we get these hyper cycles in this commodity. Yeah, and, and you know, look, I was trading the Aussie uranium stocks back in two thousand six, seven, eight. You know, and and saw that price spike that, that you were talking about there. But what is it that's really kept such a cap on the price? Because it it just it hasn't had it hasn't been able to get up off the mat for almost a decade now, right? It's just been yeah. flat since Fukushima, despite the the very obvious supply demand restrictions despite all the various things that that you know you you've made the case for uranium for for yeah. say the last 5 6 years those are all still in place what was it do you think that stopped the price getting off the floor because the the number of plants permissioned and you know planned for around the world when i say the world i mean kind of east of europe has not changed in any way in fact it's probably climbed higher in that time well Great question. I do want to caveat because this does come up a lot. When we went strongly public with our views and even around our first conversations, the price of uranium was around 18 or 19 a pound. And now we're pushing 50. When you look at the chart, it doesn't look like a big move because of how big of a drop we had. Um, but I just, I just want to get out there that the good news is that we've, we have climbed, that we've climbed higher in a significant way on a return basis. But the answer to your question, I think generally, it's very, we could spend hours talking about the, the nuances of this. And we've written about it a little bit on, you know, on our website, on our public facing um, communications that we put out there sometimes. But in short, a lot of people talk about supply. I think the, the average observer will say, well, you know, we still have some inventories or some mobile supplies that we need to work through. And that that's really the overhang. And it's at least my view that it's, it's kind of the opposite which is that we actually haven't started a demand cycle yet in, in, in a real way. So in really simple terms, um, there is a certain amount of supply that will be in the market regardless of the circumstances. $50 uranium or $18 uranium, it's entering, it's entering the market. Um, and let's just call that kind of the, the inelastic supply that's in the market. And I'm gonna go, this is really basic, but if the demand at any given point in the market doesn't exceed that kind of first tier of supply, prices could really be anywhere. You know, it's, it's where the buyer and seller meet and commodity economics don't really come in to the equation. So we can dig into that a little bit more. But I think if, it's, if, if people are looking at this market for the first time, I would, I would focus much less on this idea of some, of some inventory overhang and go back to like reactor math. Um, so to your point, there are some 450 and in, and in theory growing reactors worldwide, and they need a certain amount of uranium on a normalized basis. You know, when you strip out seasonality and lumpiness and when they choose to contract and whether they draw a little bit on inventories or not, which are finite, obviously, take all that out and just look at how many reactors there are operating in the world and what they require. And let's just say it's an inevitability that that uranium will be needed going forward, barring some new technology or something like that. And that amount far exceeds what the inelastic supply is by, by 
a multi, let's, let's use rough numbers that those reactors on a running basis need something like 190 to 200 million pounds of uranium. We calculate that something like 100 to 120 million pounds comes into the market at these prices regardless. So the hurdle, I think, to testing kind of the marginal cost curve is, is are all periods where you contract more than that kind of first tier of supply. And then obviously we start following commodity economics, which is we'll tier to the next marginal cost and the next marginal cost and the next marginal cost. And that's where the investment gets interesting. Um, and I'm sure we'll talk about Sprott you know, as well, but we are starting to test, we are starting to test some kind of key levels in the market, both because of real end user demand and also because financial players are realizing how vulnerable this market is. Um, and, uh, and I guess, anyway, that, that, that's what stays kind of exciting over the, over the coming years. But, you know, it's been, it's been interesting to me to watch this because those numbers you just highlighted, they haven't changed, right? That imbalance has only gotten bigger. And yet nothing's really happened about it until really the last, I guess, what, six months or so, we've started to see a real move in the price. You know, it was, it was down at 30 bucks for, for a while yeah. and kind of bouncing between 20 and 35, I guess. And as you say, now we're up just at 46, 47 bucks. And, and for the first time, there's some real wind in its sails. Did anything material change? You touched on the Sprott Fund. Yeah. Did, did anything material change? Well, now we get into a little bit of the dynamics of an illiquid commodity market. Definitely interrupt me if any of this doesn't you know, resonate or if it gets you know, a little too in the weeds. But one of the issues that the uranium market has had over, over long periods of time is that you never had you know, a persistent bid in the market, though you always had kind of persistent supply for, for a lot of reasons we get into. So price discovery was very difficult. I mean, in certain periods, um, and uh, you know, Camco probably you know, certainly has you know, some reason to you know, lament this dynamic. You know, the market would move from 27 or 28 to 35 pounds on significant amounts of volume. Sorry, I should clarify that. That's when Camco was replacing some of their MacArthur River production by purchases in the spot market, and you know, they would do some heavy lifting. And then legitimately, the price would drop down from $35 to back to 28 or 29 on a few hundred thousand pounds, maybe half a million pounds of, of supply. And what that, that, that would be one of those sources of inelastic, price-insensitive pounds coming to market. But without a persistent bid, it's not the oil market where you have an opportunistic buyer on any given day that's making a market. And so in certain periods, the only buyer was XYZ counterparty. And if they went away, again, in the face of persistent inelastic supply, the price would move in what I think most people would call an irrational way because of the volume dynamics that were so different on each, on each side. And so, you know, what Sprott or even just attention to the market, you know, what that changes is just creating some, some price discovery in the market where where much less manipulation, if you want to use that word, can occur. What I, what I would say is maybe inefficient trading, you know, is reduced because if things get out of whack in the market, you have a natural buyer, a persistent buyer, which sets a more rational, um, more rational boundaries in the market that didn't exist before. And so, in short, what changed, you know, when, when Sprott entered the market or when, when things moved from 30 to 48, you know, why are things different? It's really just that some of that, in those periods, some of that supply that may have knocked the price back down into the high 20s, 
could, couldn't do it anymore um, just because there was a, a bid, frankly, in place that was lifting them out of very small amounts of material. Now, here I would also caveat because the average observer and certainly a lot of the media has tried to paint the move from call $30 to $50 at its peak as, be, as being purely a result of Sprott's buying in the Squeeze market. It, yeah, yeah. And that is absolutely not the case. Um, it's way beyond, you know, the scope of this uh, podcast to go through like every every lot that traded. But actually, a lot of the jumps in in price uh, was from other financial players outside of Sprott and even some utilities that were saying, I'm willing to buy up multiple dollars on the screen because now that there is a persistent bid in place and supply may not just try and jam the market, we're worried about a runaway. And so, sorry, I've thrown a lot out there. I'll, I'll, no, I'll, no, no. I, I, can, I, I can stop, but there's a lot, essentially there's a lot of misinformation. One, Sprott was not responsible for the entire move, but because Sprott is a persistent and necessary buyer in the market, sorry, in a market where there's been a necessary and persistent seller, the dynamic is obviously changing as a result of that. That's also influencing the behavior of end users who actually need the material and how they view your pricing. And all of this leads to kind of the dynamic issues that, that create any market. And the trend is higher as a result because there's actually not that much material around over kind of the reporting periods that are relevant. Sure, there'll be pockets here and there, but especially when you see utilities enter in force, price rises. Now, now just just talk a little bit because there there will be some people here listening to you and I talking about Sprott and and not actually understand what Sprott is doing. Uh, and it is it's a fascinating uh, vehicle they've put out there. So just just talk a little bit about that and and its place in the market right now. Yeah. So so Sprott is. You know, for the for the layman, think of it as a holding company. It's it's technically a unit trust whose sole purpose is to buy and store U three hundred eight. They purchased a prior holding company called Uranium Participation Corp, and many in the market essentially thought that this was the same vehicle run by different management. But um, the the folks at Sprott deserve a lot of credit for realizing an issue with the predecessor vehicle, which is that on the holding company model, their ability to take advantage of inefficiencies in their market price versus net asset value meant that they they couldn't enter the market very often. So said differently, a holding company that trades at a big premium, if their stock price is at a big premium to net asset value, they should issue shares and buy the physical material that they hold to create an equilibrium in that net asset value. It would be accretive to shareholders in that holding company, right, to buy material at a discount to their value. They could not do that very often. And historically, if you look at UPC, it was once, maybe twice a year because of how cumbersome the barriers to doing it were. Um, and I won't go into the details, but essentially when you, when you have to do a marketed equity financing, they needed board approval and line of sight on material that didn't distort the net asset value much more than a, than a very small amount 
uh, versus the time when they went out for the deal. Sorry, you know what? I can tell the, the audience can't see Grant's face, but I can see it. I'm going way down the rabbit hole. Long story short, it was inefficient. No, no. On the contrary, I'm 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 fascinated. Seriously, yeah, I don't, yeah. don't don't uh, don't stop going down the rabbit hole. This well, is a well, smart I'm, audience. I, They'll stay with us. Don't worry. Okay. I'm, well, I'm, long story short, the barriers to raising capital in that vehicle were difficult, and in particular, starting in 20. 18, 2019, 2020, when participation in nuclear-related trades was picking up and a lot of smart, savvy macro investors were starting to do some of the math, UPC disappointed them because it was, an, it, it was inefficient. There would be times when it would, could trade at extreme premiums or discounts to it and right. its net asset value, and there wasn't much they could do about it. And that was a, that was a doubly problematic issue because, one, it was inefficient security uh listed security and two it didn't actually solve the macro event that the people purchasing the security wanted it to fix which is i give you money you go buy material you buy material the price goes up net asset value goes up i give you more money and the price goes higher again right sorry so that's a more simple simple way of saying it And and the folks at sprott deserve a lot of credit because they realized this inefficiency and they did something about it. They restructured the holding company as a unit trust and they put in place an at-the-money offering vehicle so that they could stealthily and very efficiently raise money in any quantity the market would will give them on any given day if they are trading at a premium and they accumulate that cash and they can buy material in an accretive way, again, much more consistently in the market so that they are a large aggregator of pounds in the marketplace. And you get a lot of questions, especially from the nuclear industry, on how kind of sticky those pounds are. And uh, it's been said before, but I'll emphasize again, that they are as good as sequestered for the market uh, for a very, very long time. I mean, you essentially need to assume a breakup of Sprott and a rewriting of their mandate and bylaws to assume any of that's going to be sold back to the market. It is a vault, um, which means it is effectively an end user. You know, it is a utility. It, it is going. It is going away, and their material will not be used by anybody else in the marketplace. Um, similar to as if it was burned up in a reactor core, uh, at least for the foreseeable future. So the impact is very large. So, so now also explain how um, a private company like Sprite is allowed to go out and buy a load of uranium and just store it. Because I've had a few people ask me about that, and the answer is quite interesting. You know, I won't. I won't claim to be. Yeah, I want to stay in my lane uh, as an investor. I won't. Won't claim to be a, a regulator or, or anything else. But the way it works is that it's price discovery and adding efficiency and liquidity to the market. So, you know, kind of naysayers or skeptics have accused them of cornering the market. But the fact of the matter is that other market participants have plenty of opportunity to be on either side of any of these transactions as well. And again, if you look at the trading volumes, and in particular, the trading volumes and trading counterparties on days where the spot uranium price made its largest move, it generally was not Sprott driving price. And the audience will just have to trust me on that. You can go buy an expensive uh, subscription so that you can kind of comb through who was buying what on any given day, but, or you can trust me and say, and sure, Sprott was influential, but on the days when the spot price was gapping the most, they weren't the um, counterparty uh, doing that heavy lifting uh, for the most part. 
So, sorry, taking a step back, look, sure, are we cognizant of any vehicle or entity or person or investor cornering a given market? You know, absolutely. What I would say for anyone thinking that you shouldn't invest in uranium today because there's some regulatory impact from Sprott that causes those pounds to come back to the market, I would say that there are a few arguments maybe you could make. That Sprott has pushed uranium prices to the point where they are economically impacting uh, industry. And I would just say, look at the average prices paid by utilities in the U.S. and Western Europe, and you'll find that we are right in the sweet spot of their long-term contract book pricing. So it has done nothing different. I would also look back and say, how much were utilities contracting versus their requirements over the last three years when we were 50% below their average long-term contracted price? And the answer would be they didn't do that much. All this is to say is that they are generally kind of pricing sensitive buyers. Goes back to the point that the price of U308 in particular is not an economic make or break for the US utility or the Western European utility. They are not reliant on low U308 prices to make their economics, the very small percentage of the operating cost. So really, what are we upset about here? We, without a doubt, have a more transparent price uh, in the market. And the truth is that utilities uh, have been sellers to Sprott at different points over the last five months, which would very much endanger the claim that this is a cornering mechanism. Uh, If it was cornering a market, the critical counterparty being utilities wouldn't be sellers to it. So sorry, that was maybe a little bit of a disjointed answer. But but the, the, the fact is that for the information we have now, it's simply adding depth and transparency to the market. Participants that in theory are negatively impacted by its presence in the market don't seem too concerned uh, at the moment. So the question is, who's really griping about it? That's my view. Okay, but I'm not an SEC. I'm not an SEC or, or no. other regulatory lawyer uh, or an expert on these matters. Well, Full let, disclaimer. Let, let, let's dig into the let's dig into the weeds a little bit then, and 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 come to Kazakhstan because, as you said, right, it's forty it's forty percent of the uranium supply of the world. Um, and it's been very quietly 40% of the uranium supply for quite some time now. And then a couple of weeks ago happens and suddenly it's on every front page of every uh, newspaper everywhere in the world and Russia involved and there's all kinds of fireworks happening. So so talk a little bit about the uranium industry in Kazakhstan, how, how it functions, what the companies look like and what this recent unrest might potentially do to the uranium market, if anything. Yep. So... Um I'll start with your second or third question first. There is only one company, and that is Kazatomprom, which is a formerly 100% state-owned, now 75% state-owned uh, mining company. That does not mean that there aren't other stakeholder interests that we need to think about when we tie in the geopolitics, because they have JVs, especially on their key assets, with critical uh, players around the world. Uh, including Camco, you know, here in the West, uh, the French, Orano, CGN, the large Chinese utility, and obviously Russian entities. So there are are major stakeholders uh, to think about, even at the asset level, under the umbrella of um, the company Kazatomprom. So if if, if we go to the, you know, to the events, and I I want to be careful because I'm not a geopolitical expert. And without a doubt, there are some real 
uh, complicated undercurrents to what exactly happened, yeah, how sure. it started, why it ended. But you know, our view is that supply is not likely to be impacted in a material way from this event. The company has been flagging supply chain issues uh, for the last six months that have, I think, been underappreciated by the market. Difficulty getting uh, acid leaching uh, at mine sites, even food and COVID supply issues, which likely is having an impact. But if we talk about the event, you know, the political unrest, uh, there were some you know, observers who thought, hey, 40% of global supply is going away overnight uh, or is being annexed over to Russia. And we throw very much cold water on that, on that view, uh, barring something unforeseen changing you know, into the future. So going back to Kazan and Prom, they have been a remarkably stable and reliable counterparty to global utilities. So for the person who thinks that this is kind of a you know backwards emerging market uh, company that's been you know rife with problems over the last several years, and this is just kind of the straw that broke the camel's back, they would be very wrong. Utilities globally. Uh, have benefited from Kazadam Prom's low cost, stable, and kind of on-time production uh, for many, many years now. That has led to a few things that we that that we do think are important for the market. Uranium production, as we talked about at the beginning of the podcast, is is concentrated to begin with. There are only a few production sources and they're controlled by a few entities. So any kind of disruption has ripple effects. And without a doubt, over the last decade plus, you know, the counterparty exposure and geographic exposure to Kazakhstan from the world's utilities has grown. And I'm not saying anything that hasn't been said publicly, uh, including from Kazatomprom, frankly, but the idea that they will at any, that that company at any point is going to get more than 40 or 45%, right, of any one utility's contracting exposure is just unlikely. And it's one of the reasons that they've shifted to a much more disciplined approach to production broadly, because if they keep producing, they can only sell so much to Duke and Exelon and CGN, et cetera. And, so, and they were cognizant of that fact. Now, a geopolitical disruption like this only serves to hammer that point home more, I think. And so on the margin, and I want to emphasize on the margin, you know, we think that you know, Western utilities are going to be more keen on diversifying the counterparty risk to the likes of Western producers. And over time, you know, probably get some of the premium that's missing in the market for really high quality, either care and maintenance or brownfield development assets um, in, in jurisdictions that we would call outside of risk bucket you know, jurisdictions. And that would be more than just Kazakhstan. It would in, probably include you know, Russian sources. Uh, Uranium One is a big supplier in the market. It would be China-controlled African resources, you know, main, mainly in Namibia and, and Niger. You know, those might carry a different risk bucket than, say, Canada or ultimately, you know, Australia. Time will tell. Despite that, Kazadam Prom will continue, in our opinion, to be a very large counterparty to the West. And, you know, I guess to a certain extent, Kazadam Prom shareholders, I think, should, should feel relatively comfortable that they have spent an inordinate amount of time over the last 10 years courting Western dollars. And their go public scheme was very well thought out um, and ties into their kind of domestic strategy. 
They have a pipeline of IPOs for other domestic uh, champions that they are very keen on getting to market. And as a last point, you know, we don't doubt that Tokayev's consolidation of power now is going to be followed with some more populist measures. But historically, you know, the, the best outlet, frankly, for redistributing domestic wealth you know, to citizen stakeholders is via the global public markets. So yeah. the idea of shutting that out, you know, again, I'm not a geopolitical expert, but we have spent a lot of time, you know, with consultants and in country. And, and we think that Tokayev and his administration are, are keenly aware of this. They're not closing off. So in short, this is a wobble that reminds, you know, global utilities that in a concentrated market, you need contingency planning, diversification, you know, and other risk mitigation strategies. And I guess my argument would be that, generally speaking, the industry has been very fortunate over the last decade to not suffer a large mine flood or another ad- or right, other adverse right. event, you know, at the concentrated production base. Until two weeks ago, we had barely had a geopolitical event that that affected things. When that's happened many times before in the past, and, and yet utilities globally are very concentrated in their exposures. And so from our view, this is just another reason why the dormant capital cycle, which was at the underpinned our thesis to begin with, you know, needs to accelerate. We need to uh, develop some of the world-class resources that exist globally. And all of these things are going to become more important as, as demand really pushes higher uh, over, over the next five years. Yeah. I mean, we haven't, I mean, I guess the real, the last real big um, disruption was um, was the Cigar Lake flood, which is, I mean, that's what twenty two thousand six seven, I guess. Yeah. Now we saw the price spike to one hundred and forty dollars a pound back then, but the, the, you know, it's it's interesting to me looking at the price of uranium since we saw what happened in Kazakhstan, what ten days ago, two weeks ago. It's been yeah. remarkably stable. Yeah, and and you know, we'll we'll see what happens here. The other thing I would say about the spot market is, is that it, it gaps a lot. You know, we talked a very high level about the move kind of from 30 to 50. But if you, again, if you kind of look at trading volumes, and I'm making up numbers here, but a lot, a lot, a lot would get lifted at $33, $34, right? And one inelastic seller clears or a few, right? And we have a $4 gap. Without a doubt, there's not only a psychological level at 50, but there are also a lot of technical elements in this price range in the market where you are going to see supply that we have to whittle through. I mean, we should just be outright. There, there have been a lot of you know, commentators and, dare I say, kind of Twitter personalities. Yeah, there were a lot of people that were disappointed that on the Kazakh news, we didn't go to $100 range. Right. Well, I'd yeah. be really curious to hear from those people who thought that would be the event what they thought very specifically in terms of spot supply dynamics was going to happen as a result of of, of, of the Kazakh unrest to cause a, a price move to $100, because we're pretty familiar with what we think it would take. And it's just not something that generally happens overnight because, again, of the spot market dynamics that are present in this price range. And we'll know that we've gotten through it because the price isn't going to move 50 cents higher a day for two weeks. It's going to move $5 or $10. And the, and the market will know that this dynamic in, in the spot market has shifted. And I won't go into it here because you know, we, we penned a small, I wouldn't call it like a primer, but a technical piece 
on spot market dynamics here. Just you know, just go to segwaycapital.com and then there are yeah, I'll, put, I'll put a link to it in the in the transcript. Yeah, put a link to it because it, it talks a lot about what reverse carry trades and inventory management um, look like today and really what it means kind of for the next several years. And in short, no surprise from the Segra team, you know, it just creates more pressure out even starting a year from now, which is a good thing. Honestly, it's a good thing that we don't go to $100 uranium. We want a, a market underpinned by not just strong fundamentals today, but by recurring kind of demand, not, not even just demand, but by pull forward of demand consistently throughout the coming years. And that, I think, more than some large price spike that's met with skepticism in the market is going to be better for all of our investments. I mean, the royal all. <laughs> Everyone who's yeah. looking at the space is going to make more money, I think, in a rational move higher that will have gaps, but is not something where we are putting the industry at risk because of a quote-unquote squeeze. Yeah, you know, it's funny. If you if you look at the price chart of uranium, you can see it, it kind of bottoming in late 2017. And the chart's been great. This, this last spike has kind of taken it away from that uptrend. But it's been a really decent, solid recovery. And I think to your point, that the lack of any kind of crazy supply constraint-induced blow-off just because of unrest, I think is a hugely positive thing for the uranium market because that's exactly the sort of thing you would have expected to to have the speculators come flying into this market yeah. trying to make hay just because of all the things we talked about and the fact that it's been on its ass for such a long time. You know, absolutely. I I, I agree. And and. Look, I think this segues pretty decently into into another topic that that somebody should talk about on a podcast, which is that MacArthur River is going to come back, or is highly, highly likely to come back. Again, unless there's some public disclosure that that's being missed, this is one of the world's best mines. Sure, we could see capex uh, rising, uh, which is one of the reasons why Campco has been so steadfast uh, in their rationalization strategy. But MacArthur River is a good mine. The Kazakhs have more productive capacity. No, I will stop all of the, you know, Twitter blog posters right here in their tracks because Adam Prom's ramp potential without very, very large amounts of exploration capex is not going to overwhelm the market. But assume that in the right price environment and in the right demand environment, their subsoil use comes back. So how do we think about this in a framework? As we have whittled through these different supply layers, you know, right now, since we started talking about this at $18 and as we sit at $48, there is a certain amount of supply that is going to be in the market regardless of where we are. You know, uranium byproduct from the Olympic Dam mine, some of Kazatomprom's JVs, the other operators um, who may or may not have a profit incentive, sell some of that material back into the market year in and year out. The Uzbeks have a low cost and also perhaps different profit motives Currently, that material comes in, in, into the market, you know, and, and, and I can go on with a few other sources. That's kind of your first level. And I think if we want to be optimistic on the market, we are seeing the kind of demand that, has, that is essentially balancing that, which is why when Sprott was out of the market for a six or an eight week period of time at the end of the year, prices didn't, you know, prices were 43, right. 44 bucks. And frankly, a dollar or two here or there is irrelevant in this market. So let's just say it was flat. You know, I, if that had occurred a year ago, one buyer 
with lack of follow on demand, we probably would have dipped back into the high, higher, even mid thirties. But I think the end of year price action was indicative of, of a market that's cleaner, right? So we're going to hopefully set a new base for demand and we understand that supply. You know, even here today, um, tier one production is likely being contracted at market related pricing between tier one producers. And I think everybody listening here knows who I'm talking about when I say tier one producers and utilities. Utilities are starting to get involved here. No, they're not contracting 200 million pounds a year. They're not restocking inventories, but they're entering, which along with Sprott is creating a nice floor here. We will get through that first layer. We will incentivize MacArthur River to come back online and the CASX to come back online. And when we get through that, that's maybe where the bite happens. And we're not smart enough to figure out how quickly the market realizes that MacArthur's contracting and that once that's gone, you know, we're not left with anything else because that's kind of the real inflection moment. But we will get through that. That supply is going to find a good home. It's not going to be in the market. So the, the market may see a MacArthur River headline, right, that it's restarting and freak out. It's very possible. Everybody on here, get ready. You know, because at some point, whether in the near term or the medium term, if the price environment's right, Campco will make a decision. But what the market is going to misunderstand is that those pounds, if and when they come, they're not a free-for-all. They're not up for grabs. They're not even in the market in the same way those other sources are. They will go directly to a utility. And so whatever price action we kind of get, whether it's in the commodities or in the, in the mining companies thereafter, I actually think that's kind of the beginning of the real bite in the trade because that's when we shift to figuring out or we, the market shifts to figuring out, well, well, what are we going to do about that persistent 20 to 50 million pound annual gap that we forecast out now that all of the critical minds are kind of spoken for? Yeah, you know, it's, it's fascinating. This, the MacArthur River story is an interesting one. And, and I think because of the unique structure of the uranium market, you know, MacArthur River was what, 10, 12% of global supply, I think, roughly, somewhere, somewhere around there. It was double digits for sure. And they just kind of mothballed it in 2018 when, this, when the price of uranium was, was on its knees. And, you know, I, look, I don't know enough about how much it would take them to get that going again, but it wouldn't be much. But, but what I find is interesting is now with the amount of kind of magpie capital that the, the, the recent price action has yeah. brought into this market, for people that understand the d- dynamics and, and exactly what you just laid out there, there are going to be a lot of people as soon as they see MacArthur River is going to go live once more, are going to pile in and short the hell out of the uranium price thinking, okay, here we go. This is going to be you know 10% of world supplies coming back on. But that's new capital. Those are people that haven't been in the uranium market for five, 10 years, don't understand the dynamics of, at play here. And again, it could be a, a, a huge head fake. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, your time, time will tell. And again, this is full caveat, short-term market swings, you know, kind of any, anybody's guess. But yes, I think to your point, the important thing is that MacArthur River specifically, for the company to make that restart decision, you know, without facing major backlash, um, yeah. given their public disclosure, they have to have a significant portion of that in good hands before a decision is made. Um, and a restart will take, you know, 18 to 30 months, right, uh, for, the, for that actually to be coming online. But even just that, the headline announcement, they'll have a home already. So, 
you know, look, we factor MacArthur River in. We have a, you know, a dynamic supply demand model. Um, and in the rice price environment, which honestly isn't too much higher than here um, from a price perspective, is kind of a go signal. The key and what I think the market should take away is that volume is just as important as price. So you need to see utilities, you know, enter the market in a more substantial way than they have. Um, although they are increasing, they're increasingly present in the market today, but they'll step that up. But when MacArthur pounds come on, they are going to be immediately earmarked for a counterparty already. There is zero chance that those end up in the spot market. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly right. Well, just before we wrap up, just going back to Kazakhstan, because it is, it look, it's the biggest supply of uranium for the world, and it's right now the most volatile country that mines the stuff. So we, we need to spend a little bit more time on it. Yeah. Are there any worries you have about the potential fallout from that, it, whether the 25% free float gets renationalized, whether they change any of the rules on investors? How big a risk potentially is that? You know, so we've done a little bit of work on this, no surprise. And we don't think nationalization risk is high. And certainly okay. like Russian annexation risk, which was floating around the... Right. Um, yeah, the Twitter sphere was another concern. And both of those look like very low probabilities. Um, if you look historically at, you know, senior type companies, usually in the resource and mining space that have been nationalized, they almost all of the time have private individuals as the largest shareholders. So, you know, name your large kind of senior oligopoly that has a oligarch <laughs> as the largest shareholder and something happens at the state level and they want to take that back. And so you see a restructure because Adam Tom's largest shareholder is Sam Casina, all right, which is uh, for all intents and purposes, the sovereign wealth fund, the, the fund of the people. So, so, so nationalization doesn't make as much sense here. And again, I don't think it's supported kind of by the historical examples. Now, would we be surprised to see some sort of restructuring, whether in name or outright of Samrook? Yes, I think it is probably likely that you see some sort of shakeup. Again, maybe just in name, because Tokayev has has promised to be more equitable uh, to the people now that he's consolidated yeah. power. We did a small write-up on Kazatomprom again, or we've done two um, in the last month, which, which again you can find on our commentary yeah, I'll link section. Yeah, links to those as well, though, because they're both great. Yeah, thank you. And we the, 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 the timing was unfortunate, but you know, it, oh it, even, but, no, but even reading them back, it's interesting. Even reading them back with the benefit of hindsight, yeah. Even you know the Golden Slumbers piece, which came first, made an awful lot of sense, even with the benefit of hindsight. All we were trying to point out is that there's margin of safety because. No, no one gives that stock credit for higher prices. That, that, that was really, really the big takeaway. And we've tried to show historical examples. You know, when, when, when a person says that, you know, Semia, um, you know, Eastern European and, and kind of Russian satellite natural resources companies have to trade at a single digit earnings multiple because, because. Um, we just tried to shed some light on the fact that, that, they, that they don't have to. And, and, you know, look, when we wrote the second piece, the stock was essentially flat. Um, despite you know very large kind of geopolitical shakeup, um, so, but I tie back to that because we we gave a small reference to you know one possible sol solution if you want to call it that 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 the Kazakh government may may employ. Um, you know R Romania had kind of a similar post-Soviet setup, and they set up a fondal proprietariat, which is a publicly traded 
you know, kind of hold co for some of these state champions. And I won't go into all the details about how the ownership structure works there, but it is something that I think is viewed by most emerging markets investors as being a good way of redistributing some of that country wealth. Again, there will be something probably like that occurring at Samrook Casina, but is it is it minority shareholder unfriendly? No, we do we, you know, we, we do not think so. Could or will the tax regime change in, in in Kazakhstan for natural resources and mining? Most likely. Do we think it's debilitating to the financial model? No, uh, we don't. And again, uh, we've been fortunate to have some some strong contacts there and at least from what we can take away now, there is a, an extremely strong desire not to upset the apple cart. And the right people are being put in the right places from Kazadam Prom's perspective. So that again, with the information we have today, it is much more likely than not that it's just business as usual from a strategic stamp, from a strategy standpoint um, and from a shareholder interaction standpoint. Brilliant. Uh, look, it's, it's been a, I mean, I can't believe an hour's just whizzed by without even, even realizing it. But just, just before we go, uh, Adam, yeah. I'll get you to, to tell people how they can read all your stuff about this trade. Just, just give us a kind of 30,000 foot level view on what you see for this next year, the, the potential consolidations, what you're looking for as catalysts to the, to the upside or potentially the downside just over this next kind of 12 months. Yeah. Uh, you know, Absolutely. Um, One, I think the most important thing is that I think you're going to see increasing amounts of utility demand uh, in the market. Uh, 2022 is a big year from in terms of like a contract fall off standpoint. So their 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 coverage, uh, as you would loosely say, drops in 2022, and then it drops more aggressively in 2023 and every year thereafter. So we're really we are getting into that sweet spot of where utilities should become more active participants in the market. And obviously that is, you know, kind of the, the critical element. Sprott is a very important player, you know, in the market and it can't be underestimated. It is virtually impossible to guesstimate the impact that it's going to have because it's financial flows. But to the extent that the, the vehicle itself is almost a self-reinforcing mechanism, but I would be shocked if we didn't have one or two bouts of high volume large issuance periods for Sprott where they accumulate a lot of cash and they buy a lot. Depending what the supply picture is like in those windows, you know, again, it's just kind of removing that last Jenga block from the from the stack at each one of these levels in the spot market before you see a gap again. And I I think at some point in 2022 we will we will test the market again from a financial flows uh, perspective. And then, you know, I think I think it really is going to you'll come down to maybe more stock specific stuff. That's maybe a hope, a hope as a stock picker, right? right. Um, yeah, because sure. we don't own, we don't own the space broadly. And we'd be the first to tell you that we think there's really attractive things here in the market and things that we wouldn't touch in this market for a very, very long time. And, and it's still, it's still correlation one, which is, you know, maybe a little source of frustration as a, as a stock picker and someone that's hoping this market gets smart as we, you know, as we evolve. But I think, you know, I think there's going to be some interesting stock-specific catalysts as we go on here. I think there could be consolidation. I think there should be M&A. I think that you know you still have the EU taxonomy kind of lingering, but despite the long odds just three months ago, it's looking increasingly likely that nuclear gets some form of support in the green taxonomy. 
that will have outright impacts on the market over the long term. But I think it also gives the green light for a lot of interesting kind of corporate activity, M&A, a refocus for global mining, and dare I even say global energy, maybe to, to enter the nuclear markets. And that's maybe the long shot hope, but I think we should all keep our eyes on it. And and as always, you know, we emphasize that with pricing in the market here today, um, you want to be buying quality and you want to be buying scale because the, the one macro factor that doesn't seem to really enter or it doesn't seem to be fully accepted yet is that we have persistent deficits. Regardless of where the price is today, over time, we have persistent deficits. And I just don't think enough people who've been following the space, even over the last two or three years, are acknowledging how kind of little development we've seen in terms of care and maintenance and brownfield assets, despite the attention that the space is getting. And ultimately that's the pinch point. You know, if you believe in deficits, and I think the math is pretty clear, we really need some some visibility into who those next producing assets are going to be. And we haven't made a whole lot of progress there. There's some guys that have gotten some licensing and are talking about mine plans, but as any kind of seasoned resource investor knows, you know, if you're still kind of in the design phase, that, that's far, 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 far from being a, a producing entity. So they got to kick it in gear. Yeah, no kidding. No kidding. Adam, it's been fascinating hour. Thank you so much for doing this. Just before I let you go, just let people know where they can follow your work. I'll link to all the stuff in the transcript, but just uh, just let them hear you tell them where to, where to find you. Yeah, sure. So uh, my partner, Arthur Hyde, is the much more public-facing side of our of our Twitter activity, but I would say that uh, as an increasingly important, I guess, medium of idea exchange, we are at Segra Capital and at Jekyll Capital. That that would be Arthur's uh, personal handle. I do some of the posting at Segra, or we both post on at Segra Capital. And then our website, we're increasingly starting to put some things in the public domain. Uh, and you can always follow us at, in the commentary section there. And that's segracapital.com. Mate, it's been yes. a, a real pleasure. Uh, it's good to see your face and, and hopefully Great to see we'll, you, man. I'll see you in person again soon and we can, we can have a beer and, and, and investigate what the hell is happening in uranium in the next few months because I dare say it's going to be as much fun as the last few. I'm, I'm, I'm holding you to it. I'll see you soon and uh, best to your family. All right, same to yours, mate. Take care. Good to see you. All right, man. Be good. Bye. Well, uh, as I said at the top of the show, Adam is one of my two go-to guys for uh, for anything when uranium comes up onto my radar. And I think, having listened to that for the last hour, you understand why. You know, he's a, he's a very, very thoughtful guy, and he's someone who really, really does his work. I've seen that over the years um, in spades. So, uh, as Adam said, you'll find a lot of the commentary, which I would encourage you to read if you're remotely interested in the uranium market. You'll find all that at segracapital.com. S-E-G-R-A and they've got a, a special section on the website with all their commentaries on it as he said you'll find them at Segra Capital on Twitter and again it was a real pleasure to get a chance to speak to Adam we'll have to do it again I suspect as this uh, as this trade unfolds but that's it for me for the meantime I will be back again with somebody else shortly I'll talk to you then bye bye thanks for listening Nothing we discussed should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets.